Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to my podcast, Second Chance. This episode focuses on Aaron Howerton, who at the age of 19 became a murderer and was sentenced to a life in the American prison system. Despite his juvenile Parkinson's disease and depressing circumstances, Aaron developed his passion for music and has become a well-respected producer from inside the Monroe Correctional Complex. After 27 years inside, Aaron was denied parole but continues to fight for his freedom. This interview took place over a phone conversation and at points we got disconnected as Aaron's prison phone time ran out. Thank you so much for calling me today. Now, for my listeners, I just want to set the scene here, if it's okay with you. So can you please describe to me where you are in the world right now? So I'm in uh, Washington State. It's in the uh, Pacific Northwest of the United States, up towards Alaska and right below Canada. I'm at the uh, uh, Monroe, Washington. It's the Washington State Reformatory. What, what does that mean? So you, you, what you're telling me, what you're telling my audience is that you're actually inside a correctional facility, in other words, a prison. Yes, I am. I'm actually standing out on the tier that's uh, 40 cells long and four tiers high. Wow. How many prisoners? Um, so in this unit alone, there is about 180 uh, per unit. Um, most of the cells are single man cells, but the top tier are two man cells. Wow. And how long have you been inside that institution? So I arrived here in 2012. I came from Quallum Bay Correction Center, which was uh, nicknamed Gladiator School. And I arrived there in 1995. Gladiator School, that sounds like a place where men with no tops on, sweating, muscles bulging, come face to face. Is that how you're describing that facility? Um, yes, um, there's a lot of gang members, um, a lot of drugs, a lot of violence. This place is more relaxed. Quallum Bay, back in the 90s, was deemed the most dangerous prison in Washington. Wow. So you, you've been in the institution that you're in at the moment since 2012, but you arrived from there from another prison. How many different prisons have you been in? I've actually only been in two. When I was convicted, they give you basically a choice of two close custody maximum security prisons. And I chose the one closest to home. They actually allow you to choose which one you want to serve your time in. That's, is, is that liberal or is it, is it more about the facilities? Um, I think it's more about the facility. Um, there was a, a dynamic in my case because I have a co-defendant and they don't want us housed in the same facility. So one had to go to one prison and the other. and I chose first. So, Just for the audience, Aaron, how long have you been in prison altogether? 
I'm going on my 27th year in May on Mother's Day. 27 years. And how old are you, Aaron? Um, I'm 45 and I'll be 46 this year in June. Happy birthday for, for, for June when, when that time comes. Um, what age did you get sent to prison? I'm trying to do the maths, but it's probably easier for you to tell me. <laughs> yeah, um, I, um, I was 18 years old and very lost. I just want my, my listeners to take that in. You were an 18-year-old boy when you went to prison, and you're 44 years old now, and you're still in prison. Yeah, I'm 45, almost 46. I'm still in prison. I've watched many guys come and return multiple times in the time I've been incarcerated. Let's take the conversation back to the beginning, if it's okay with you, Aaron. And and, and if there's anything that I ask you about or or try to push you in the direction of talking about, please feel free to ignore my question or tell me you don't want to talk about that. But can I start by asking what what your childhood was, was like, where you grew up, what life was like, who you lived with, siblings, father, mother, etc.? Yeah, um, and just to clarify, um, I'm a very transparent man. I don't hide nothing from nobody. I'm a very accountable man. I'm very honest. So just so you know that uh, um, nothing is off the table, full disclosure, and um, I hope to, uh, to for this to help somehow. So I grew up in Everett, Washington. My mother was, um, she built boats, and my father uh, worked on cars. When I was two years old, they separated. And I have a sister that's four years older than me. And uh, we lived in a pretty good neighborhood at first, but then we moved to a rough neighborhood. And um, when I was two years old, my parents d- divorced for my mom's infidelity. And uh, things kind of went downhill from that. When I turned three, I was run over by a taxi cab. I was uh, chasing a girl across the street. And I run out in between two parked cars, and I was drugged down the street about 70 feet. I broke my legs. I had multiple skull fractures, a lot of contusions, bruises, and uh, I was in the hospital for quite some time. And it caused a lot of after effects, uh, a lot of physical limitations, disabilities throughout my life that still affects me to this day. My mother, she uh, married the man that uh, uh, she had an affair with. And my father retained full custody of us. The problem was my father was never there. He was always working. And so we were left in the hands of babysitters and friends. And and at that time, you know, in my young life, it was a very hostile environment. There was a lot of bikers, a lot of drug addicts. There was murderers, ex-convicts. It was a very rough neighborhood. The, the neighborhood was so rough that a lot of times when somebody was killed in my neighborhood, you know, the police, they were afraid to come to our neighborhood or the only time they come into our neighborhood is when they were coming to pick up a dead body. So that was very hard. And I lived in Everett for about 10 years until my 10th birthday when my father uh, met his new wife and we moved to the countryside. Life changed even more then. We lived in the woods. I actually lived in a tent for about a year. And they lived in a converted old school bus that was turned into a motor home. And, but I was pretty much on my own. Uh, my stepmother didn't like me. She had two little girls of her own. And I think she uh, was trying to divert my father's attention to her kids and kind of push me out of the way as my sister had already moved away to my mother's. And uh, so it was a very rough childhood. I had a lot of medical problems. I was diagnosed with uh, junior Parkinson's disease or juvenile Parkinson's disease. I think I was about nine years old at that time. So I had a lot of physical limitations. And uh, yeah, my childhood was very rough. I had, there was a lot of abuse. Matter of fact, uh, when I was, I think I was about seven years old, I would go over to my friend's house all the time and his sister had uh, abused me. She used to burn me with cigarettes. And um, she ended up dying in prison, actually, for a different case. But, uh, yeah, I suffered a lot of abuse and some molestation, you know, from my cousins. My sister and I were both victims of that, uh, sadly. And, uh, yeah, very rough childhood. And, you know, actually, um, prison saved my life. Wow, that's quite a testimony. I mean, your your story already is jaw-dropping. When you reflect back on on your childhood and your and your growing up before you ended up in in prison, 
how would you say affected your personality? Um, that's interesting because uh, I really didn't know who I was other than that I was very careless all the time. I was very outgoing, you know, trying to fit in and trying to survive. And the cast of characters that I grew up around, you know, they had a huge impact on me. I mean, most of the people that I knew had, you know, nicknames. They didn't go by their real names. And there was a lot of bikers and a lot of thugs and, you know, people that you probably shouldn't have your kids around. And that made it really more all the more challenging. Yeah, I mean, it's almost you could say that I was destined to come to prison because of my upbringing. That's a real bad testimony. And and when was the first time, or how old was you, Aaron, when you first got in trouble with the law, and, and, and what was that for? So, actually, I did pretty well staying out of, you know, the view of the law. Most of my problems was I would go to, like, uh, teenage keg parties, and the cops would come and they would, you know, tell everybody to go home, and that's pretty much the extent of that. Um, I did get a traffic ticket when I was 16, but it was minor, and I didn't really have no criminal you know, intentions or malice towards anybody. I wasn't out robbing or stealing or nothing like that. I did have one occasion. I was actually homeless when I was 17 and I was starving and I stole some bread and some lunch meat out of the store, but they ended up dropping the charges and it was nothing. And was there anyone when you were growing up uh, and, and I mean an adult or any adults in your life at that point who you looked up to, who who were, I say, a good person, because even bad people can be good people to, to, to children at, at times. But was there anybody in your life during this period that you looked up to or, or that sort of looked after you? Yeah, actually, um, I had a couple. I had a couple of close friends who were much older. Like when I was 10 years old, I had a 30-year-old friend, and he was my best friend. He was a fisherman. And he lived up the street for me, but he was a really bad influence. But he was kind of a protector, which, you know, that kind of changed things for me because I needed that at that time. But there was, when I first moved to Monroe, there was a woman who lived across the street. And I'm actually writing a screenplay about her and her life because she had an amazing story. But she was very influential. She was a Holocaust survivor. And... um you know, she taught me a lot. I mean, she, she used to feed me all the time. I would sneak over into her barn at nighttime to stay warm because I was freezing or wet. And uh, she would sneak out and put a blanket on me, and I didn't even know it. She was just a great person. She, uh, I used to walk her dogs with her and uh, yeah, heavily influenced me. She always tried to steer me in the right direction, but there were so many other distractions that it was too much. And when you say distractions, you have 60 what, seconds remaining. Is, is that your... Uh, yeah, that's the, uh, uh, the notification. I'll call you right back, so oh, just hang on. Okay, I'll pause and wait for your call. Hello, Aaron? This is a global tail link prepaid call from... Aaron. An inmate at Monroe Correctional Complex. This call will be recorded and monitored. If you wish to block any future calls of this nature, dial 7 now. To hear the cost of this call, press 8 now. To accept this call, press 5 now. To decline, thank you. Yes. Aaron, thanks. Thanks Thanks for coming back. What, what's that about then? Is that the authorities only allow you a set period of time? Yeah, um, so our phone calls are limited to 20 minutes at a time, and then you have to redial. It's uh, part of their charging fee. Oh, right. It's not because there is a line of prisoners behind you trying to get to the phone as we often get depicted in the movies. Yeah, well, a lot of times it's actually like that. But uh, this morning it's relatively quiet. People are at yard and at work. Oh, well, that that's good to know. Let, let's pick up the story where you, you were talking about a couple of adults in your life who, who, who were positive role models. But obviously they were not doing enough in order to steer you away from some of the mistakes that you were you, you were making in life. What what were the mistakes that you were making? And were those mistakes driven by, you mentioned Junior Parkinson's. I mean, just tell me a little bit about that and how that was affecting you growing up. 
When I was diagnosed, uh, my parents noticed it after I was run over. I had some really bad tremors, and a lot of times I'd have mobility problems. I'd have problems like getting up or, or sometimes forcing myself to move. My brain would tell me to, but it just wouldn't work. So it affected me mostly in school because I had a learning disability, and I always had this physical, you know, limitations, and, you know, it caused a lot of... Uh, you know, people would make fun of me, bullied, you know, and I was kind of left behind. And I think at that time in the early 80s that teachers and the administration didn't know how to deal with it. They just didn't know. So I didn't get the attention that I needed and it limited me from, from end up finishing school. Right. OK. Um, um, how was it affecting you physically? So it still affects me today. I have noticeable tremors. I do take medication for it. They tried to give me some other medication after years and years of fighting with medical here. Um, but once I took it, I realized that it was just too much for me. I don't do drugs. I don't drink. You know, I don't participate in illicit activities. But um, it just basically the medication took me over, and I felt like I wanted to eat the paint chips off the wall. <laughs> <laughs> so it was just too much. I couldn't handle it. So I figured, you know, I'll just deal with what I've been dealing with and hopefully – you know, it doesn't get any worse. There come a point, Aaron, where you did whatever it is that you did that led to you being convicted of a crime and sent to prison. Just talk me through or, or lead me up to that moment and then describe to me what you can of, of what what happened. So this story is a very tragic story from beginning to end. You know, here I am on my 27th year. Um, I'm serving a life without parole sentence. I was tried and convicted at 18 years old. I was convicted of aggravated first-degree murder and sentenced to life without. Um, I had a co-defendant. It was um, the end of April, 1994, and uh, I was out hanging out with some girls, and my friend was down from another town, and we were partying, drinking, smoking pot, hanging out, being kids. And um, the next day, uh, we went on a road trip, and when we returned from that road trip, one of the persons that was with us, it was uh, one of the girls' boyfriend. He was a uh, gang member. We had dropped the girls off, and we went to go smoke some pot up close to my house because we were going to drop me off. And it got out of the car, and the guy shot my friend in the head. And I didn't know what to do. I was very traumatized by it. It really messed me up, and I made every possible bad decision that I could after that. I had no intention or malice in my heart towards my friend. It was one of those things that, you know, kids, they love to boast about things and talk about things. And prior to the incident that happened, there was a conversation that took place in a bathroom where one of the boys had said, hey, we ought to shoot him. And I remember my last words before leaving the bathroom was, no, we're not going to do that. And I exited the bathroom, but ultimately that ended up happening. So after my friend Wyler, his name was Wilder Eby. After he was shot, I actually, um, and I'm very ashamed of this, but I drove my friend's car and I used his bank card. The next day I participated in destroying of the evidence with the body in the car with another boy. I'm very ashamed of this because that's just not who I was. I've always been a nonviolent, non-confrontational person. And I realized that I put myself in this situation for this to happen. And I can't blame anybody for that. The day that I was arrested, I basically confessed and I cooperated with the lead detective and uh, showed him where the body was at. And I was booked into the county jail a couple hours later. And I'd never talked to anybody but an attorney. And, uh, you know, I was very candid about my participation in the crime because I was very ashamed. And one of the things I remember most was uh, sitting down with him and, and telling him how bad that I felt and that I would do anything to just get this off my conscience because, you know, I contributed and participated in the death of my friend. I think everybody in a situation like that to probably handle it different. I don't think you're going to get the same response from anybody. And I just wasn't equipped to make the right decisions. I didn't know what to do. I think I probably knew in my mind 
what was going on was wrong, but I just didn't know how to change it. There was actually one instance after it happened when I was driving my friend's car, I actually tried to get pulled over. I thought that oh, that was going to be my escape. I had tried to uh, swerve in front of an ambulance and was hoping that they would, you know, call the, the state patrol or the police to have us pulled over and that would be the end, but it never happened. I just didn't know how to react. And, um, of course, I was afraid. I was under duress. You know, I'd been drinking all the night before, and I was taking acid, and I was smoking pot. But I can say all those things, and because they happened, but ultimately it was my responsibility, and I failed. I failed myself, and I failed my family, and I failed my friends and my community. And I've been paying for that ever since. And uh, well, well, Aaron, not listening to you, it's it's a tragic tale, as you said at the beginning, and. I appreciate your candidness and I appreciate your, your directness. I want to ask some uncomfortable questions just to understand the story that you've just told me. Sure. You say that it was you and two of your friends. So you were together in the car and as one of the friends stepped out of the car, another one of your friends stepped out of the car with him and shot him in the head. Exactly what happened was um, we went to a spot to smoke some pot and I had requested to get out of the car to use the bathroom and I walked, you know, 10 steps around the car and I started to go to the bathroom and I heard a gunshot a few seconds later. I didn't actually see it and I came back around the car and my friend was laying on the ground dead. Um, there was actually only three of us there and Wiley had been killed and yeah, that's how it happened. And and just earlier that that same day you you you'd had discussions with the guy who pulled the trigger where he was obviously upset with this other guy about something do you know why he shot your friend so this is a very very interesting i mean it's so personal to me but it's a very interesting intriguing story because there's a lot of nuances and a lot of things that i learned many years later after my trial so I never knew why he did it. I knew that he was a boastful dude. I didn't even actually know the guy that did it. I knew him as much as I know you. I spent a few minutes with him in the car, and I met him previously, a couple of exchanges of hello, and that's about it. We were not friends. Um, we were from different groups. We were from different cities. And it just so happens that we were both in this place at the same time where this tragic event had happened. So... Um, the state had said that it was for a robbery, but there wasn't really a robbery. I mean, there was some money that was taken, but I don't think the initial, um, it was for any type of profit. And I learned much later exactly why. And I always knew in my heart that it was not the motive that they said. So I'm 15 years into my prison sentence and my friend, a childhood friend, my sister's friend, she had reached out to a bunch of classmates that I used to know and friends because I had basically isolated myself from the world being in prison. And I got a message to write this girl. She said she knew me and she asked me to write her call. So I wrote her a nice letter and I said, hey, I hope your life is turning out well, you know, and I wish the very best for you. And a week later, I got a letter from her and it changed everything. And what the letter has said, which I still have, is that the guy that killed my friend admitted to her that he killed him. And the reason why, and he actually had her throw the murder weapon in the river, threatened to kill her mom and her if she said anything to anybody. And the reason why that he had killed my friend is because the week prior to my friend's death, this girl and myself my friend who was killed and another girl, we took a road trip to Oregon, you know, just out fooling around, hanging out, listening to music, driving around. And when this guy found out about it, he assumed that my friend was with his girlfriend and he was not. I was. Um, we were riding in the back seat together. My friend who was killed was with another girl and I think that my friend Wiley saved my life. I think that um, if this guy would have known that it was me with his girlfriend, I would have been the victim. 
So that changed everything. And to heighten the story even more was uh, a couple of days later when the girl's mother, she found out about what had happened to her daughter. She called the police and the police came down and they took statements from her and you know, they put her on like a, a observation or house to make sure that nobody was going to come and hurt her. The problem was I was already in jail and the detective decided, I guess with the prosecutor that they weren't going to tell us about this witness and about this confession and about the motive and about the murder weapon and the cover up and they withheld it from us. So when I found out about this, I was pretty devastated. I was devastated that to think that the reason why this guy killed my friend was actually because of me, because I was hanging out with his girlfriend and he assumed my friend was. But then I started doing some investigation about this detective. And it turns out this detective was fired for doing the same thing in multiple other cases, cold cases and that he had had romantic affairs with women that were involved with these cold cases. And his wife found a box in their closet from four years prior that had all this evidence that this guy had withheld. So this, this detective who arrested me and handled this case was fired. He's actually now on a suspected serial killer list in Snohomish County called the Killing Fields of Highway 2. And ironically, and this this will blow your mind here, he's actually my associate superintendent now. So I see him on a regular basis. I see the guy that put me in prison and that withheld all this evidence and that has all this clouds, dark clouds surrounding him. I see him on a regular basis. I actually worked for him on several occasions. This is a weird dynamic that I'm in. And the story, it's actually much more deeper. There's a lot of crazy details. So, you know, I'd hired lawyers to represent me over the years. Um, a lot of them would take it advantage, you know, just took our money. American lawyers, they're not all <laughs> what they're cracked up to be. I don't believe most of them are honest. I have met a couple of good ones, ones that I have now, but not many. But there are people that actually do care. But most of them, they all belong to this you know, elitist fraternity and they work for each other. And it's not about, you know, people's lives. But and it's not about conscience and morality. No, but all said and done it, it, with this copper and with the circumstances uh, of the case and, and the questions surrounding the case, none of that changes the fact that one of your friends pointed a gun at another one of your friends. I bet you didn't know him very well. And, and shot him dead. You didn't pull the trigger, but you were there and then participated after the crime um, in, in covering the crime up or attempting to cover the crime up. And you continue to, from what you said, Aaron, you continue to drive the car and you use the, the dead guys, the, the dead teenagers' credit cards or bank cards or, or something. And, and you did that because you, you say you couldn't, see a way out of the situation why didn't you go to the police immediately once you were away why did you participate in those other illegal activities in, in particular that the covering up or the attempted cover-up of, of the crime if if you were so shocked and ashamed by what had happened yeah you know and i should have made the right decisions and i was not equipped and you know that's that's my guilt and that's, you know, the guilt that I carry is I should have and I knew better and I didn't. And I honestly don't know why. I think a lot of it was out of fear. Um, I was in a situation I didn't know how to get out of and I should have ran to the police. And, you know, I'd had bad experience with the police before, not something that I did, but, you know, as a child and even as a preteen, I was assaulted and, you know, the cops in our town, they, uh, I was beat up by my stepmother's two boyfriends and uh, the cops actually said that uh, I should have been on the school bus. So there was that in my mind that they've never helped me in any way. And I should have known better though. And that's my fault. And I, and I don't blame anybody for that. You know, that's my accountability. 
Thanks for, for sharing that. How, how did you and your co-defendant get caught? So actually, after the car and the body was burned, we split up um, him and the other guy. They went somewhere else, and I went home. Actually, the crime scene was basically in my backyard. It was about 500 feet from my property on the backside. So I went home, and I stayed there. My dad came, and we didn't have a real house. Uh, We had a couple of little trailers, an outing trailers. And my car, I had a a 63 Impala that had broke down that had actually led to where I was at at the whole time. I wanted to get all my belongings because I knew the police were going to come. So I went and I brought my car home and I stayed at my dad's place for six days. And uh, I knew the police were going to come because, you know, I knew that my friend's mom knew that she was that, that he was with me. She knew this. So there was nothing like they didn't know who he was with. And it was, you know, it wasn't nothing like that. I knew they were going to come for me. So I just waited until they did. And they came on Mother's Day. Aaron, I know this happened a, a very long time ago, and you've paid the price for your involvement um, tenfold, I, I suspect. But there are just a couple of questions before I move on and, and talk about other things that you've done and, and hope to do. And the first one is is probably the, the most uncomfortable one, and that is why you and your 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 co defendant decided to to destroy the evidence in the way that you did i.e burning the car and attempting to to destroy the body of the man or young boy that that had been killed what what i mean where did that come from that's quite a a cold act in an attempt to to cover up the 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 scene and and it does require a, a particular behavior you know i can't imagine that many people have it in themselves to after committing the initial act of murder to then try and dispose of the body in the way that you attempted? That's a very good question. Um, I think that goes in, yeah, exactly what you said. Um, so obviously we were kids and kids are very impulsive. They don't think about things. You know, they don't think about repercussions. I don't think kids value life. I think most kids are day to day. And I think influence and peer pressure... Where the idea actually came from, I have no idea. I don't know where it originated. I don't know if it was from one of the other kids or my co-defendant himself. But I do remember the next morning um, after Wiley had been killed and the conversation went to, we're going to get some gasoline and we're going to burn the car and the body. And that's when I was really thinking about, you know, why it happened. Because it obviously wasn't for a robbery. I know my co-defendant had said that he was going to sell my friend's car, um, but that never happened. So there is a lot of still unanswered questions about a lot. I have many unanswered questions, and I've never talked to him since. So he actually pled guilty, and he got a 20-year sentence, and I believe he's been out for six or seven years now, and I'm still in prison. How does that work? He pulled the trigger. That is, it, was that disputed or was it simply because he took the guilty plea? Did you not plead guilty? So um, my dad and a former um, attorney and judge, he, they would not let me plead guilty. I wanted to plead guilty to my participation, but they wouldn't let me because of my charge. I was charged with aggravated murder and you can't plead guilty. So, you know, um, in America... We have the Constitution, and if you exercise your constitutional right and go to trial, you will be severely punished for exercising your right, whereas if you basically hop on the sword and tell them everything that what they think their narrative is, then you will be rewarded for that. I didn't know any better. Like I say, my father was making all the decisions. He was not going to let me plead guilty. And so I took it to trial and was found guilty. Mind you, fast forward 15 years and knowing what we knew, we didn't know that back then. And it could have potentially exonerated me from the current sentence that I have. But that didn't happen. Shocking. And I can't move on without asking about the the, the victim and the victim's family. I mean, what can you tell me about 
not not any details about the victim. I think you've explained that you didn't know him very well, but ha- have you since the crime had any contact with the victim's family or or any response from them at all about what happened to their son, brother, nephew, etc.? Yeah, you know, um, the victim, Wilder, um, he was a good person. He was an honorable person. He was a hard worker. He was honest. He was kind. He was compassionate. And him and I had a budding relationship. You know, we were we were becoming friends. And I failed him. I betrayed his friendship. As far as his family, um, I didn't know his family personally. I was about to meet his mother that day at her work, but she had left. I was ordered um, when I was sentenced to have no contact with the family members, and so I never did. However, in December, I went in front of our governor uh, for clemency, and I was ultimately denied, but we kind of envisioned that I might be denied anyway. So the reason we continued was that we wanted to give the victim's family some type of closure. You know, they never had a voice during this process. During court, they got to say very little. They never got to say how they felt about it, how they felt about me. And I wanted them to be able to have that voice. And if they wanted to yell at me, I was fine with that. They wanted to cuss at me. I mean, I would have accepted his mother slapping me. You know, she deserved that. And I can't tell you how bad that I feel for the victim's family. Um, just knowing the loss that I've experienced in my life and the tragedies, I know how they feel. So we give them that opportunity. And um, I still, to this day, I hope they can um, find some peace. You know, I wrote a, uh, a victim's letter through a group. And uh, I submitted it, but it was denied because they had said that I had said something that I had never said before. And what that was is I, I said that how their son saved my life and that I hope that they could find some comfort in their healing knowing that their son was a good person. I was very sorry to them. And uh, I, you know, I kind of dedicated my life to to becoming a better person, you know, kind of in his memory. And, you know, you asked me earlier about if I had any influences and I really didn't have very many positive influences growing up, only but one or two. But after this happened, I kind of used him. He was a very positive influence and uh, somebody that I knew that I could be or who I should have been. So um, he was a very honorable man. Tell me about the, the, the final moment at the court, because you say you've been sentenced to life with no parole. For those who don't understand what that means, what does that mean, Aaron, for you? That means um, when they told me that I was going to get life without parole, Uh, The judge told me that he had no discretion under the law. He would have liked to have sentenced me to less, but because of the charge, he had no. And I was crushed. Um, I thought that that was the end of my life. And when you have life without parole, you the chances are you're going to die in prison. I was 18 years old, and my lifespan, I'd probably live another 60 years or more. And if you could imagine 60 years in prison in a place like this, where the hostility and, you know, the trauma and the abuse, and we haven't even got into that part. It was devastating. And a lot of it was was mentally about how it was going to affect my friends and family. I think at that time, my concern was, you know, for my father and how he was going to take it, how my friends were going to react, the embarrassment and the shame that they would have to face each day because I did something so bad and embarrassed my I embarrassed him, and a lot of shame. So being sentenced to die in prison, that's very hard for a kid. Let's talk a little bit about how how you've coped in the 27 years that you've been in prison. What was it like in the first 10 years, 15 years? How, how did you manage? I mean, you've just said that, you know, the, the thought of, of dying in prison at the age of 18 was a crushing burden to to carry you know there will be lots of people who think well because of the crime you committed that's exactly what you deserve that's not what this part of the conversation is about it's really about how you cope in prison with that 
weight of sentence around your neck. So how did how have you coped so far, Aaron? What was it like at the beginning? The beginning was really rough because, you know, I was sent to a very violent prison where, you know, the prisoners were abusing young kids that came in. They were raping them. They were beating them up. And I actually, and this is the, the second time in my life where I had been so scared and traumatized. So when I got to Colum Bay, you know, a lot of abuse going on. There were crooked cops everywhere. There was some white guys that were eyeing me. I was a good-looking young white kid. Didn't know nothing about nothing or anybody. Very naive about the system. Didn't know how it worked. And some guy wanted to rape me. And I wasn't going to let that happen. And so I stabbed the dude. I stabbed the guy five times. I came out of my cell. Actually, what he said to me the night before was that I was going to have to pay rent. And it wasn't going to be with money, but I was going to have to pay rent with my ass, is exactly what he told me. And I went in my cell that night, and I panicked. I thought about, you know, do I tell the police? What do I do? I know they're not going to help me. They'll probably punish me. I didn't know what to do, so I sharpened up my toothbrush, and I said, if this is how I'm going to go out, this is how I'm going to go out, but I'm going to go out fighting for myself for once. Previously, I didn't really fight for myself. I kind of give in. And so I went out and I stabbed the guy, and after I stabbed the guy, I went up to my cell, and I was thinking, okay, the police are going to come and arrest me for stabbing this dude that was, you know, threatening to hurt me and they're gonna save me. And I waited for about an hour, and I had all this adrenaline from what I had done, and they never came, and I fell asleep. And when I woke up, there was a guy kicking me in my head, and I blacked out. When I woke up hours later, or however long it was, my cell was covered in blood. I had a stab wound in my stomach. My tongue was nearly half bitten off. I had a broken arm, I had a couple of busted ribs, and my face, I had multiple contusions and cuts, and I didn't know, I thought I was gonna die. My, there was blood in my eyeballs, and I actually sewed my own stomach up in my cage at Colum Bay Correction Center in 1995. And I remember the next door neighbor banging on my wall, and I could barely speak. And I remember him telling me, don't you say a word about what happened. You know the guards there? They walked past my cell for days, seeing my cell covered in blood, seeing that I was visibly hurt, a young kid, and they did nothing about it. And then I found out that the two guys that came in my cell, I thought it was only one, but it was two, I found out that they paid that guard to let them in my cell because of what I did to their friend. So, you know, that was my first experience in prison. That's a, that, that's a horrible story. Yeah. And, and was that what life was like for you over the next few years, or was that the one and only incident where something so violent had happened to, to you? Well, that was the most violent, but I had been assaulted on a couple other occasions. Yeah, a lot of politics involved in prison, and uh, specifically the the whites. Uh, I knew the, um, basically the shock caller and he had raped my childhood friend Miranda and he knew that I knew about it. And here this guy is a convicted rapist raping a kid and he's basically calling the shots for the white people. And he was worried about me telling people. So he sent a mission on me and a guy came up behind me and he knocked me out. And he ended up stomping on my head about, I don't know, five, seven, eight times, I was told. And I woke up in the hospital. That, after that, uh, you know, it's I've been really lucky. I've only been in one other fight with another guy um, who I'm actually friends with now. And um, everything that I've been involved in has been very political in prison. But, yeah, those are the most extreme cases. How has prison changed you over the last 27 years? I mean, have you just survived the spaces that you've been in, navigated your way around and out of more violent incidents like the ones you've just described? Did you seek help 
from, I don't know, the, the authorities? I mean, how have you managed to get through 27 years? You know, there have been a couple people that, that I'd looked up to in prison, but I never got extremely close with them, but I watched. And I made a decision that, you know, because of the culture the way it was in Fallen Bay back then, I wanted to change that culture, and I knew that it, since I was going to be there a while, if I could survive it, I wanted to change it. I, I didn't like feeling the way that I felt. I didn't like seeing those things happen to other kids that I knew, because I seen those things happen also to other people. And I wanted to change that. And it took about, I want to say about seven years before actually seeing some change. And it was actually through music that that culture changed. As you know, I'm a musician. I've released six albums from prison. I taught myself how to play multiple instruments. I got a certification through a Musicians Institute and sound reinforcement and music theory. It was actually through music that changed my life and set me on a different direction. I have heard that you're a musician. I've heard you're a rock star. I, I've heard that you... Um, <laughs> you know, you've achieved much um, and have a huge reputation, not just in the correctional facility that you're in, but across the prison, uh, federal prison estate because of your talents and because of the mentoring that you've given to other prisoners, but just because of the the message that your music is sending out. So tell me more, tell me more about how you embraced music and, and why it was music that you found was the, let's say, weapon to change who you are and other people rather than, and I know education, music is education, rather than a business course or a, a course about the law, which is what lots of prisoners turn to, to take on the, the system or, for, or to fight other prisoners' cases. Why was it music for you, Aaron? Well, I think music is actually what started it. Obviously, most everybody loves music. They can relate to music. They like the way that it makes them feel. I believe that it has you know, therapeutic qualities about it that, um, that help people out and they, they, they open people's minds and let them think forward and let them dream and imagine. I mean, John Lennon said it best, imagine. But that just opened the door for so many other things. It gave me access to people and it gave me access to do other things and to educate myself through employment and vocational skills and mentoring and cultural unity programs. So being a musician... I was able to attend every organization, every, every culture, every race, their programs I had access to. So I got to talk to people, and I got to, to, to share who I actually was. And it turns out a lot of these people liked who I was, and they liked my message about, you know, bettering ourselves and helping our communities. I made a commitment. I dedicated my life, you know, to, to not being, you know, this definition of what they tried to define me by, you know, a convicted murderer, that's not who I am. I'm a very kind, compassionate person. I care about people, and I have suffered, you know, trying to help other peoples just because I believe it's the right thing to do, and that's something that I never had. So I wanted to see that happen to other people. So I had all this access. People are knowing who I am. They're asking me to play their events, you know, their culture events, and... And I've become friends and acquaintances with some of the hardest dudes in prison. And I've earned their respect over the years. And it was through music that they did that. And, you know, I've done ESL. I've done every trade skill that you can imagine. My resume is literally three pages long of all the things that I've done and learned in prison. And in about 2005, 2006, the culture in Clallam Bay changed. The violence went down probably 70%. People were, um, so I'm a Christian, and I would go to the chapel, and I would play music for guys. And there was literally lists of hundreds waiting to come up there to the chapel. Well, one thing about it is to be able to go up there and enjoy this experience with other people, you have to stay out of trouble. So it was kind of inspiring to a lot of guys to stay out of trouble so they could go up there and experience a lot of these things that other people were experiencing because the word of mouth was just so passionate about it. So, you know, that was huge. And uh, I don't know anybody, and I know everybody in Washington State. I don't know anybody in Washington State 
I can't think of one that has done more than I've done. I'd like to hope there is, but I haven't seen any. And what sort of music are you into? I mean, it sounds like it, it doesn't matter as long as it's music and as long as it's entertaining, as long as it's steering other prisoners away from 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 the culture that, that prisons are often depicted by. That's all you care about? Yeah, you know, as long as it'll touch somebody and make them think and stop and relax a little bit and they can breathe. And I think... Uh, it gives people a little bit extra what they didn't have before. And for me, it made me focus. It gives me focus. It gives me purpose and meaning to be able to, you know, play music and do all these other things, have the access to it. And I think that it contributed to the other people doing the same thing. I've seen a lot of successful people in prison. Yeah, and it's, it is quite amazing. And is it is it just confined to the to the prison estate, Aaron, or are are you able to? Because at the beginning of this, you said that you, um, you, you've done some albums. Are these just prison internal albums, or are these albums that people can access on the outside? You have 60 seconds remaining. I recorded them in prison, and I released them. I had a, a music manager and released them to Spotify, iTunes, Apple Music, Google, all that. They're readily available. I actually have a, a website also, Devour Records. It's my own record label that uh, Lainata and I started. And uh, we're going to continue on that some too. Should I pause here? Are you able to call back? Actually, no, I have to go. You have 30 seconds remaining. Aaron, I... I, I hope so too. Look, thank you so much for your time. And we will do a part two for sure, because I'm sure people want to know more about what's next. Yeah, actually, we have brand new news. Um, the Washington State Supreme Court says that I'm mandatory um, to be remanded to go resentenced here in the next 60 days. So I'll probably be going home. Oh, that is good news. I didn't really get a chance to thank Aaron for his time or to round up the interview as once again the phone cut off. So apologies if it all ended abruptly, but prison takes away a person's time. Thanks for listening to this podcast and please share and follow us on social media. It would be great if you could rate and review on the site where you listen to this podcast. If you want to support or advertise on this podcast, please get in touch. If you think I should get someone on the show, drop me a direct message via Instagram, Twitter, Facebook or any other means you have to make contact. Audio editing is by Audio Avalanche. The original music is by J-Row Productions. The cover design work is by Studio Minerva. Our guest booker is Tegan Harsons and me, your host, Raphael Rowe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.